I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... We do a lot of what's known as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion work for companies. And we help them look at not just what's the right thing to say, because that doesn't have any credibility, and that will become a liability very quickly, but how to do the right thing. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. Coming up, we have a conversation with Richard Levick. He's the founder and chairman and CEO of Levick, which is a crisis management PR firm here in Washington, D.C. He sees it all. He sees it when companies are in trouble and helps them out of it. And what you're going to find in our conversation are a couple of things that really, really woke me up. Number one, the role of human resources in companies now has changed forever because of diversity, equity, inclusion, and other reasons like that. So HR is no longer the backwater of a company. Secondly, transparency. People say it's the right thing to do. We should all be transparent. But sometimes it actually goes against the goals of the company or of society. And lastly, what's it like to work with U.S. companies that are in trouble versus non-U.S. companies? The differences are way, way more surprising than you may expect. So here's our conversation. Richard Levick. He is the chairman and CEO of Levick, which is a obviously named after him, a crisis communications firm based here in Washington, D.C., although they do a lot more than crisis communication, I am told. Richard, welcome to the show. Well, Mark, first of all, thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to see you after, I'm not supposed to say this, so many years. Yes. You know, I I just want to correct you on the introduction. I had to search high and low to find a firm with my name on it so that I could apply for a job. Nicely done. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. And they were like, wait a minute, he applied? (laughs) They had to say yes. But uh, you were at prior firms, correct? Before you started Levick? I, yes, I was. So I've been at the crisis, public affairs, litigation, communications for about 40 years. Uh, In fact, the history of those aspects of communications, litigation, crisis, public affairs, communications, certainly the the former two are about 40, 45 years old. We've been extraordinary pioneers in those issues. When I first started working in litigation, communications, many lawyers, and I'm a lawyer by training, did not want to participate. And they only really got religion as the plaintiff's bar became a full internet generation and had really understood the power of communications. In terms of my own experience, I don't think in in third grade when we all lined up, you know, what do you want to do for a living? You want to be, you know, I'm going to be a nurse. I want to be a policeman, whatever, uh, that I said, gee, I want to be in crisis and litigation, public affairs, communications. But it sort of evolved. It was the common denominator. I would do political work, and the communications aspect was always so critically important. And I think back to the Reagan uh, years, and he really understood that if you call something that wasn't necessarily good for the environment a blue skies initiative, that it changed people's perceptions. Yep. They were also the first administration in the early uh, internet days, and they were not public then, but you could have it building to building. And he, his team, his cabinet, had a line of the day, 8 a.m. Every department was uttering the same message. There really was an extraordinary level of message discipline. Yep. So I think that if you look at those historic aspects, uh, it really motivates one to understand the importance of communications. And then the last thing I'd say, of course, is growing up and having your 
young political teeth cut, if you will, uh, you know, in the early 60s, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, yeah. John Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, often forgotten, the importance of communications really changes our perception of the world. A lot to unpack, but let's let's go with message management and message discipline. Now, this is a bipartisan show, so I'm not going to ask you to comment from a political standpoint, but it is amazing to me that one party, the Republican Party, is extraordinarily aligned in message management line of the day. That, that happened with Reagan, but I, to this day, I think... You know, from Louis Gohmert on on up, they seem to have some constant labeling themes, which they hammer every day. And the Democratic Party, as I guess the comedian once said, you know, I belong to no organized party. I'm a Democrat, seems to have less discipline. Is that a fair assessment? I'm not sure if it's true. You know, one of the things that I found so interesting is all the media coverage over the last number of months on this now $1.5, $1.75 trillion uh, relief plan that uh, the administration, that this current administration is negotiating. And every few hours, we get the differences between, you know, Joe Manchin or other Democrats. And uh, there's this sense of disorganization. But in fact, prior to 19, uh, the 1980s, you know, the Watergate babies opening up uh, politics, most of this was done in smoke-filled rooms. Yeah. And politics, in fact, is the art of the give and take back and forth and negotiations. Lyndon Johnson, the most famous negotiator uh, amongst them, and we can get to Johnson in a little bit, but that I sometimes wonder if it's not just too, much, too many close-ups you know, it's sort of like televising NFL practices yeah. rather than the games and saying, oh, they don't look like they're ready for Sunday. That's what I think we're seeing, you know, with C-SPAN and all the things that it's that it has spawned. So transparency might not be the end game we should all be chasing. I'm not sure transparency has been all that good of a thing, uh, although we often uh, cry for it. Uh, since Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, you know, how sausage is made. We see a little too much. And then as uninformed consumers, although we all think we're, you know, because we stayed at a Holiday Inn the night before that we're experts. Nice uh, reference. Thank you. Thank you. And are are they a sponsor of the show now? They're they're going to be after that. Good. So I I think that, you know, we sort of look at that, you know, know, in the century ago, we looked at Upton Sinclair and said, well, I like sausage. Could we just make it without the meat? (laughs) Uh, You know, and that's how we become critics. (laughs) Well, your firm uh, does international work as well as domestic, and unfair question, but you must see some interesting schisms between how a client, domestic client, reacts to hiring you and what you're advising them versus maybe what you see in Europe or EMEA or, or whatever the various arenas are. Are there some kind of distinct differences or is it more of a continuum? There are absolutely distinct differences, and we've represented over 30 countries. There's an appreciation for cultural issues. My, you know, I'll have a speech uh, this week on uh, with China, another one with Korea, and you look at all these different cultures, and they're all different. And as someone who's spent a lot of time in, in well over 70 countries, you know, I see this diversity when I'm when I'm driving between. Uh, the Emirates, Dubai, and Abu Dhabi, that 90-minute commute, they're very different. When I'm in Korea or I'm in uh, Beijing or I'm in Tokyo, 
Uh, they're very different cultures. And yet here in America, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I feel sometimes, you know, only what, 16% of Americans have passports. Even the people who in their hearts want diversity talk about it in this really narrow way as if, well, here's an Asian perspective or, you know, something we never hear and we should, but, you know, here's an Arab perspective. And it's like, no, the world is much more complex than yeah. that. And if we really want to appreciate it, there is no substitute than spending time there. And then the big issue, Mark, I would say, and they're different, of course, but Japan, Korea, China, those are largely shame cultures. Yeah. And the reason why that's so important is if you and I are in a meeting with board members or senior executives with an American crisis, even though there are reasons why you don't always get that transparency that you need to understand the full problem, it will happen more quickly. When I'm in China, when I'm uh, in Japan, when I'm in Korea, where I spent a lot of time, it often takes two or three days to get that email, oh, by the way, this is what you need to know yeah. because of the shame issue. And I understand that, but sometimes crisis moves at a much faster pace. So I was on the board of a publicly traded company in Switzerland on, this, on the Zurich Exchange. And to your point on shame, I was in the audit committee. <laughs> the audit committee meetings were like nine hours long because they wanted every number to be right because in Switzerland, if you were thought of as a, as a scammer, you were done. There was just no way you could return. So let's go there for the U.S. It seems like we're losing a lot of shame as a, as a feature. Are, have you seen that in your practice, that it's, it's no longer as detrimental? Uh, absolutely. And I remember years ago thinking headline risk is what you're talking about. Yeah. What happens when companies are no longer afraid of the bad headline. Now, if you're publicly traded, that's a different issue, and uh, a drop in the stock can have significant impact. But I do think sometimes, it's so fascinating to me, that business was the one largely pulling back from the last administration, and not, uh, not looking at it at a partisan point of view, but from a communications point of view, what was so interesting was you had an administration where, for the first time that ever, uh, you know, I think of Lincoln sitting by the teletype uh, machine, but that was so he could get intelligence from the field, not so that he could dominate the conversation. You had an administration that was dominating the president, not just the administration, but a president who was dominating every news cycle. Yeah. And I think for American businesses looking at that, understand that there, there's only so many lessons you want to take from the bully pulpit of the president. Uh, but uh, yes, there is, there's less fear of headlines. And whereas we used to get hired oftentimes for years and years, we usually get hired now, you won't say usually perhaps, but we often get hired now for, just get me out of this. Right. Get me out of this cycle for a Save week, me. a month. Yeah. Save me. So we're talking with Richard Levick. He is the chairman and CEO of Levick, a crisis management firm that does all sorts of crisis management. So let's let's stay on that that headline uh, uh, meme for a second. What percentage of your clients when you are engaged by them or your or your colleagues do you think to yourself it might be too late? Well, look. Well, uh, you're so talented, of course it's 0%, but in general. Yeah, Mark, thank you. Thank uh, you. Uh, so much. And why don't we just I run that on an endless loop, <laughs> I think for the remainder of the show. I I it's it's always best to be prophylactic. It's always best to be anticipating. And one of the things that clients hire us for is the intelligence. You know, the Brazilians on the World Cup, the Qataris uh, prior to the Saudi Emirati blockade. That is, give us intelligence. And I think that the greatest challenge for companies is, you know, for 70 years, we've had silos. 
human resources, HR, GR, government relations, outside legal, inside legal, crisis, the list goes on and on. Different buildings, different cities, sometimes different countries. That no longer works as a model in an environment where activists, and I come from the activist side, activists are all trained by Saul Alinsky, you know, whether they realize it or not, the great, great 1950s and 1960s community organizer, yeah. Rules for Radicals, uh, was the famous book, in that they're all looking for where's the Achilles heel? Where's the cleavage between HR and legal? And you know, it's a jump ball, yeah. and companies aren't prepared. And the only way to be prepared for that is to anticipate, to have the kind of intelligence which says, you know, there's only two dots here in this. There are only two stars in the constellation, but we see a pattern. Yeah. Well, uh, I was thinking of you actually the other day on this analogy. Uh, uh, my wife worked at the New York Times for years. And, you know, there's an obit person at the New York Times that writes obits sort of prepackaged for a lot of prominent people. Do, do you advise co- companies to have sort of prepackaged responses ready, or have you found that each situation is different, that you need to wrap it differently, or is there somewhere in between? I, I will answer like a good lawyer. Yes. yes. It depends. Uh, okay, right. got it. But y- yes, you need to be prepared. And I would say that the difference between where we are today and where we are a decade ago, where we were a decade ago, is that you do not have the time to react. You have Uh, to be prepared. If you look at Jim Burke, Johnson & Johnson's Tylenol 40 years ago, four and a half days before they responded, and that was because the FBI would not permit him. That was the cyanide in the the, uh, tablets. That was 40 years ago? 38 years ago. Yes, I know. But we've been lying about our age so long, it's hard to remember. Seems like only yesterday. But he had that time. Yeah. If you if you look at Tony Hayward and BP, and this is you know, 12, 13 years ago, he responded that same day. When he got that call around 11 o'clock at night in England, he said two things, three if you count the expletive. But he said, you know, <laughs> we're going to be transparent and we're going to fix this. And they acted instantly, and yet they were fined $60 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have this expectation that companies are going to fix it instantly. The only way they can be prepared is to do that kind of intelligence because it informs strategy, but you should also do the kind of tabletops, the preparation, so it's in your DNA. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. That's the voice of Richard Levick. He is the chairman and CEO of Levick, a crisis management firm based here in Washington, D.C., with offices and clients everywhere. We'll be back with more conversation with Richard after this break. with the show. You can DM us on Twitter if you have one of two outcomes. A, you want to be a sponsor, or B, if you have a person or an issue or a company or any entity that you think we should be featuring. Again, DM us on Twitter. It's What's Working in Washington. continue our great conversation with Richard Levick. He is the chairman and CEO and founder of Levick, a crisis management firm based here in Washington, D.C., with offices everywhere. Am I right about that? Or sort of? We're, we're everywhere, although everywhere. You know, we, have, uh, we don't have offices everywhere. Got it. You're, you're, you're virtual. You have 
multiple degrees, including a law degree from American University, our wonderful place right here in Washington, D.C. Unfair question, but sort of what percentage of you or your colleagues' time, for those who have a law degree, is spent using that degree? You know, you're right. It's an unfair question um, because, you know, I'll answer like a good lawyer, all of it and none of it, which is I do think one thing is, first of all, in so many of these matters, you want to be protected by privilege. It's not just nondisclosure, but you want to be protected by privilege. And most courts, most jurisdictions recognize that as part of the legal process, assuming there's litigation as part of a particular crisis. And I think the lawyers tend to be uh, really appreciative of the fact that you could look at the world through their eyes as well as through the communications eyes. But this gets back to something we were talking about earlier, which are the silos. And that is we have to look at these issues through all these different lenses, and that's what I mean all of them, because it's not just is there litigation here, but if you and I are emailing about a matter, we need to be very careful about what we communicate because if there's subsequent litigation, is that discoverable? Or if we need to balance how we approach a strategy, we need to be thinking uh, about that as well. So I think it's a very helpful discipline. And the last thing I'll say about the practice uh, of law and from a communications point of view, unless, of course, this was billable time and then I'd spend another nine hours yeah. uh, on. on it. But that it's a discipline. And the discipline says, how do we argue in layers? If not this, then this. If not that, then that. And I think that is so helpful in communications because it helps build really sound arguments. And, and you know, I, you know, I'll show that I'm a lawyer because I'm going to lie here. I said it was already done, and yeah. I'm going to add one more one thing. More. That is, we are – I never use the term spin. We're not a spin uh, company. Uh, it's not about putting lipstick on the pig. What you're supposed to do is fix the problem. Yeah. How do we solve this? Do we need to make a sacrifice? Do we need to recall the product? Do, we, do certain people need to be fired? Does there need to be discipline? You fix the problem. And I think in that regard, understanding what a real fix is means understanding investor relations, understanding brand, understanding crisis, understanding legal, having all of that extremely helpful. Yeah. So um, you said something during this conversation that really rang with me, which is the silos now are starting to merge or problems across or horizontally across silos. And one you mentioned was human resources or you know, HR, as we used to call it, or, you know, the and, and it just strikes me, be it the Netflix imbroglio and uh, other groups of employees from the Microsofts or the Amazons, or, you know, sort of, there's a list as long as your arm, as I'm sure you know, and you have long arms, but there's a list of companies where employees have taken over the issue or pumped up the issue. You've got to be watching that and saying, if they're not a client, holy moly, they should have jumped ahead of that. What are some parameters of this sort of new world of HR that you guys are seeing, uh, and maybe where can you predict it's going to go? Well, an enormously big question. One of the things that we get hired to do is look at, if you will, the Hegelian dialectics. That's sort of the holy moly. That's the grandfather clock. I, I got to wear the steel-toed boots. You're dropping these names. Here. Well, look, if you were going to talk to a Washington communications guy and weren't wearing steel-toed boots, I'd yeah. be surprised okay. that, that you were such an experienced interviewer. But it's the grandfather clock, you know, the pendulum that goes back and forth, and you look at these issues. So you look at Me Too, you look at Black Lives 
matter. You look at AAPI, uh, Asian American Pacific Islander issues, and you see how they escalate over time, and then they don't disappear, but how they plateau and how mm-hmm. other issues become important. Our audiences, and I don't mean this as criticism, but they're fickle because they have to be. They can only focus on so many issues at a time. To me, I think what's really interesting about this moment, and it's born of the uh, internet revolution, that is the ability that everyone now, like Regent's Park in England, has their own platform, their own bullhorn in which to communicate. And I I think when this first started, I think companies looked at this and said, holy cow. And uh, that there wasn't a realization that Twitter, the most dangerous place on the planet, um, and other social media, they're not polls. They're shouting. It's where the activists, it's where the most angry, it's where, quite frankly, a lot of times people who don't have time or better things to do to look at issues in more detail go dive immediately in with opinions. And it's not that it's not important, but that just because you see something in social media doesn't mean that it's necessarily accurate criticism. And on these issues... Me Too, for example, and, you know, my master's thesis goes back to pay equity for, you know, nearly 40 years ago, first man ever to work in the women's rights division of the largest union in the AFL-CIO. So, you know, I'm very proud of my feminist credentials, but it doesn't mean that every accusation is therefore right. Uh, and that just, just as every issue we look at. And what's important is for companies to look at doing the right thing and borrow something from the Chinese, which is to look long term, not just how do we look good right now, but how do we do the right thing? And then in terms of we're getting back to the issue of, of tracking, and we do a lot of what's known as DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion work for companies. And we help them look at not just what's the right thing to say, because that doesn't have any credibility and that will become a liability very quickly, but how to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Well, so you mentioned this, and I want to drill down on it, which is the response time earlier. And one of the saddest terms I've really ever heard, particularly in politics, is astroturfing, right? So fake, fake grassroots. What percentage of the time do you end up having to say to your client, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't read those 30 emails and assume that means 3,000 or 300,000 or 3 million people think the exact same thing. Is that what you sort of mean by the noise level, a signal versus the noise ratio and how you need to school people on that? I think that one of the things that we're hired to do is bring that level of experience, uh, that level of sanity, if you will, when they're drinking from the firehouse. Yeah. You know, we handled the tragedy at Surfside, uh, the collapse of the condo. and. One of the things that we had to do, we got hired two and a half days in, which was to handle the literally hundreds and hundreds of media inquiries that came in every day. Why that was so urgently important was because our client was initially incorrectly labeled in the media as likely the cause Mm -hmm. of it. So it's not just changing the headline, but it's also changing the liability risk, the the whole arc of, of litigation there with the facts. But that was done one reporter at a time, one conversation, obviously exhausting, but really powerful and, and really important. And then I think you, you raised the cultural issues earlier. When we're in Korea, again, as we mentioned, a shame culture, it's not unusual for C, uh, C-suite executives to see a single or two 
explodes out on social media and say, oh, my God, we need to do something. And part of our job is to pull them back and say, no, 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 there's no followers there. They don't have uh, – they, they, we're, we're not seeing the beginning of a wave. And then on the other hand, sometimes with American companies, where, as you say, 300 emails, and we're like, yes – this is uh, an, an indicator of what's going to come next. So it's understanding cultures, understanding, again, the larger historical issues, but also understanding what the company has done and where it's going. Yeah. So the show's what's working in Washington. Let me ask about Washington as, and the federal government, our, our, our largest uh, employer here. How often are you interacting with the federal government or state and local for your clients and, and with those institutions are trying to blame them and find the right the person at fault and stuff that governments tend to do. How what what percentage of that interaction is, is your practice? Uh, you know, we're, we've represented over 30 governments from around the world, 30 different Oh, you're uh, representing the governments. Okay. So, so we've done that, too. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. There are situations where we're in a state or a locale, and you've got the county government, the city government, uh, you know, with regulatory issues. And so you're always engaging sometimes yes there's finger pointing but you also look at what's the you know what's the win win here yeah. how, how can we help solve the problem and it is uh, and i and i and so i think that's a that's a large part of what we do which is how is it that we help the client understand you know remember after we leave the client's still going to be right. dealing with that factory or with right. that discharge so it's again getting back to the key issue of how do you help them win, not just win the moment? Yeah. Well, it's that time of the show, uh, magic wand moment, I call it, where I ask you uh, if you could wave a magic wand, if you were in charge of everything for a day. And, and since you're a global executive and your firm's global, I'll, I'll go global. Um, what, what one thing would you sort of turn down the noise of or the volume or get rid of? And what one thing would you add that might affect your practice or the arena that you're in? Well, I, I, you know, I'm taking a look at it as a larger question, sort of, uh, you know, we're the oldest constitution uh, in the world, the longest lived constitution in the world. And that's a remarkable thing. And I'm a constitutionalist. I, I, I do uh, have taught uh, the politics of constitutional law and teach uh, at Fordham Law School now in, in crisis and litigation communications. The thing that separates mob rule from uh, democracy is the rule of law. Yeah. And there's all this conversation right now, as, as we've seen, you know, about suppression of votes, of voters. And democracy is something that up until the pirates a century before America uh, was founded, uh, and really the only country, America, that, that took this, this, this thing, this theory, and put it into practice, we have to do everything we can to protect it. So I think the sanctity of the right to vote is so important, and I fear that we're moving radically in the wrong direction. Wow. Well said, sir. Uh, and uh, I heartily endorse that, and I hope our listeners do as well. It's What's Working in Washington. Our guest today has been Richard Levick. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Levick, a crisis management firm right here in Washington, D.C. Fascinating back and forth. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great. There's a way to get involved with the show. You can DM us on Twitter if you have one of two outcomes. A, you want to be a sponsor. Or B, if you have a person or an issue or a company or any entity that you think we should be featuring. Again, DM us on Twitter. What's Working in Washington is brought to you by a very talented team. 
We have our executive producer and editor, Tracy Madigan. Assistant producer is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music you enjoy is performed by The Sunbeams. You know, I often find myself wondering, what's great about Washington, D.C.? And then I'm reminded about our business, our government, our arts, our not-for-profits, our education arenas. All are fantastic and special, not only to our nation, but really to the world. I'm glad I live here. I hope you are, too. And I hope that our show continues to give you some enlightenment, some information, some actionable intelligence, and hopefully some enthusiasm about what works in Washington, D.C. So once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.